0: Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, Tracy. That was a great, amazing transition. Um, this morning, uh, a couple things. One is on your notes. I need you to take, if you have those, um, it has the wrong passage of Scripture on there. It has the correct title and the correct GP2RL and the wrong passage. So um, and we're not going to be in John 15 this morning. We're going to be in John 10. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to John chapter 10. We want to just, uh, again, welcome everyone, welcome those watching online Our Destiny Table in New York. What an honor it is. And um, With Pastor being out for two weeks, he gave me the unusual privilege of, of preaching two, two Sundays in a row. So I can, you think that means I'll have shorter sermons, but no. <laughs> uh, there's been something I've been thinking about for a while, and we're going to take two weeks to kind of tackle it. Today we're going to try to deconstruct some things, challenge you about some assumptions, and then next week try to build up a... Uh, a little more faith on what the Bible has to say. Our theme has been for this year, uh, everyone is created for abundant life. And then Pastor um, Lawrence felt like to to do something he's never done, and that was um, announced next year's uh, revelation, which is going deeper. And so I thought I'd combine the two and say, we're going to take a look at the abundant life and go deeper. We're going to have a deeper look at what the abundant life is really about. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and go to John chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. And uh, just dive right in here. John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep that hear his voice, and he calls, him, calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray. Lord we thank you for your word and now that we pray as we examine it may you examine us may you meet us deep unto deep as the psalmist says Lord uh, again we ask you to bless Pastor Lawrence in his ministry may you anoint him Lord I pray for our children in D Kids and D Kids Junior may you give them a heart to know you and to walk in your ways may you bless the hands of those who are serving them Lord, in here, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And I am so confident that you want to speak to your people, that if you couldn't speak through me, you'd speak in spite of me. And so, Lord, we need to meet with you. We don't need the opinions of men. So come, Holy Spirit. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the abundant life? What does it mean for life to flourish? What might the abundant life look like? Let me ask you a question. We talk about it. We have these phrases all throughout the scriptures, but we don't really think about them. How do you know when you're experiencing the abundant life? Have you ever experienced it? And if you have experienced it, what did it feel like? What did it look like? What did it taste like? What what, What were the circumstances? What was going on in life? If you've never experienced it, does that not lead to some doubt about who Jesus is? That might be a question. Right? We have to ask some really hard questions when it comes to the abundant life. And these questions are not just for the religiously minded. These are fundamental, uh, fundamentally human questions. These are questions that we all ask. This vision of what it means to, for human beings to flourish is ancient and it's basic. And I believe today that we struggle with the character of what this flourishing life might look like. I think we're confused by it. So by flourishing life, what I mean is what is the good that we are to strive for in our lives? What's the aim of our lives? What are we moving our lives to that we might be able to say our lives are good? The the, the phrase flourishing life or abundant life, I'm not trying to use it. It, it, it doesn't name the circumstances going on in your life. It names the ultimate goal of our striving and which informs our values, which helps us to decide what is truly worth wanting in life. What's truly worth desiring. Now here's the problem that we face. The problem is everybody already has an answer to this. You have an answer to this. We all have an answer to the question of what does it look like to live a good life. It's built right into us. And so this this answer, this vision of what you think it means to live a good life, it informs your desires. It informs your decisions. it, It informs your overall direction of your life. Now here's the good news. The good news is whatever vision you have, you can switch them. There's freedom here. But here's the deal, this is how deep and meaningful it is. If you truly switch visions, if you change from one vision to another in reality, not just in imagination, not just in mental consent, but if you truly change visions of what it means to live a good life, that will be so deep, you technically might experience yourself as a new person. That's how deep and real it is. You will see yourself and you experience the world differently. If we change the way that we think about what it means to live a flourishing life. Now, I know some people might say, what well, seems to me like uh, this idea of asking the question, what does it really mean to live a good life, is, is a luxury. But it's not a luxury. It's a basic necessity for beings who, who do not and cannot live by bread alone. This is a fundamental question. I've been in conversation with people. Say, Well, that seems like, again, a question that people ask who are rich or wealthy or have their physical needs met, but not the poor. And I think, in my opinion, we insult the humanity of the languishing if we think that they are unable to think about these kinds of questions until they move through some hierarchy of needs and get their physical needs met. Then they'll be capable to think about what really matters in life. We insult people. Not only that, if you go back, you'll find the greatest contributors, the originators of some of the most ancient visions of what it means to have a flourishing life. And even those who embrace that flourishing life, when you look at the circumstances of their life, most of them come from circumstances we today would call dire or poor or in poverty. Socrates had no money. Aristotle, Jesus these people who all get clear gave us visions of what the flourishing life might be, we today we might call them poor. So to say this is a luxury is not the case. So I'm going to try to tackle uh, three basic questions over the next two weeks. Well, today and the next one. And that is this. How, one question, how do you know when you're leading life Well, In other words, that we have some responsibility. We have decisions to make and choices to make. How do we know that the choices that we're making and the things that we're doing are moving us towards what is a good and flourishing life? That seems like a good question to ask. Another good question is, how do we know when life is going well? That involves our circumstances, relationships, things around us. How do we identify those? How might we measure those? And then another one might be, when life is going well, what should it feel like? The affection, the, um, the emotion of being human. What might it feel like? And the Bible has answers to these questions. And we're going to dive into them. And we're going to get more specific about answers to those questions tomorrow or uh, next week. But today I just want to um, uh, challenge your assumptions and mess with your head. That's basically what I'm going to do. <laughs> right? <laughs> the truth is we are all oriented to, towards some good. In other words, some things, some state of affairs, some circumstances, some emotions, some practices that we call good. Even people who do horribly evil things tend to do them with some idea of what they think is good in mind. We all have, we're all oriented to that. We are all, uh, in a sense, uh, reflective and moral beings. We want to know that uh, the good that we strive for is desirable, there would be nothing worse than spend your life striving and arrive and find out you were wrong. We want to know, and that leads to the third thing that we want: uh, we're being infinite. We want some, uh, being sorry, not infinite. Fine, we're not infinite. Being finite, being limited creatures, we, we want some assurance that that we can um, secure the goodness and rightness of our lives. Listen, usually, unless we are just bombarded by being in a hurry or or by um by being captive by entertainment, usually at some occasion we pause and survey our life, past, present, and future, and ask a really challenging question. Do I have, over the entirety of my life, could I call it a good life? The problem is, in today's culture, we rarely slow down enough to ask the question. So we have answers to these questions, and they inform us in ways we don't even know. But just think about it. We no longer really treat this, even the question about flourishing, about human flourishing, as if it's a real question that we can really find answers to. Put it this way. Where would you send someone if they come to you and say, hey, I want to learn how to live a really good life? Where would you send them? If somebody wants to learn uh, how to be really good at science and mathematics, I can tell them, go to MIT. Somebody wants to learn law, I can tell them that they can go to OU Law School. If I can tell them if they want to learn how to lose to Kansas State, they can go to OU as well. Just calm down. If they want to learn how to farm, we can send them to OSU. I mean, (laughs) uh, just having a little fun. Right? Where do you send someone who wants to learn how to have a good life? See, the problem is we can't answer the question because we don't even treat it as if there's knowledge to answer it. And there is. And so we have to struggle through this we, we would think that universities might be a place where the question about what makes the good life could be critically asked and discussed but in today's world universities have to justify themselves economically and so now really universities are teaching institutional um, re, uh, reason how to how to reason with certain institutional skills and um, and other kinds of capacities so that you can get the resources you need to pick whatever life you want Even in psychology today, if you go to some of the greatest universities in psychology, it's more about learning how to discern mental illness or neurology or helping people decide what kind of life they want rather than helping them discern what kind of life is worth wanting. Our universities have failed us in this regard. Then you think, well, maybe the church would be a place people could go. I mean, you would think if Jesus was constantly sought out by people asking about life, about eternal life, about what makes life worth living. And if this is the way Jesus was sought out, surely people would come to the church. But one of the great laments, I think, of our day, especially for the church in the West, is it grows increasingly more common for us to just employ the Christian faith as a handy set of skills to help you achieve the life the world already determined you needed to achieve. In other words, we're simply trying to sprinkle a little Christianity on an otherwise secular vision of the world. We are a chaplain to the world instead of a prophetic voice that challenges it. We, we wanna sprinkle a little Jesus on it. Like he's, like he's some agape mayonnaise, we'll just wipe it on the sandwich and then we could just choke it down. So listen, but what I'm trying to say is we have an opportunity, I believe, as a church. We have an opportunity because the world is desperately asking, what makes life flourish? What makes humanity flourish? And I think we have to take seriously that we have an opportunity here. We must not neglect this quest for human flourishing because it was central to Jesus. Jesus is filled with all kinds of teaching about life. The whole New Testament is. In John chapter 1, uh, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. Yes. Right? Um, we've read it in John 10. I've not come, uh, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest abundantly. Paul would say, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Jesus would say, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you'll lose your life. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Over and over again, Jesus is teaching us about how to find life. Now, we must, I think, as a church, we have an opportunity. If we can learn to articulate, um, if we yeah yeah if we can learn to articulate, um, discern and articulate. Let's put it that way. That would go first. Discern and articulate and commend a positive vision of what it means for human flourishing according to the scriptures, we have an opportunity to enter into a dialogue with the world and that we can perhaps let them see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person Jesus Christ. But the truth is we have to examine our own lives first. We have to ask some hard questions about ourselves. So this brings me to the passage of scripture that we're reading from John 10. Now look, one of the handy things to know when you're trying to understand what Jesus is teaching, right? Look, there's, there is a way in which you can read the Bible and ask the author to speak to you and, the, and God can take one little passage, one particular verse and make it mean something so personal and powerful to you. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody experience that? Right, that's great, that's good. That's you and Jesus, wonderful. But there is a way of reading the Bible in which I'm trying to understand fundamentally what is Jesus teaching? Because that's true. And I want to build my life on that. Not simply subjectively, what is the author saying, what is God speaking to me now in this moment about this particular verse, but what is the whole of which Jesus is teaching that I want to build my life on. And when you're trying to understand what Jesus is teaching, one of the first things you need to realize is you need to try to discern what is the general, often cultural assumptions he's trying to dismiss. Because a lot of times underneath his parables, his stories, his teaching, there's a context in which something has been brought up, and he's trying to dismiss or, or challenge the way the world or his culture sees something particularly. Does that make sense? So it's really good to have that in mind. So we need that for this. So John 10, strangely enough, follows John 9. I know it's a shock. Now you got to remember, chapters and verses didn't actually be added to the New Testament until like 1200 years, uh, about 1200 A.D., so we break it into John 10, but John 10 is actually still connected to John 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and that blind man goes and presents himself to the Pharisees. They don't like the fact that Jesus healed a blind man, right? And they get into an argument about it. They ask him. They ask his mother. They ask the blind man again. Finally, the blind man gets a little sarcastic, which I'm so glad's in the Bible, right? And uh, the blind man says, well, why don't you just, be you know, basically, this is what I know. I was blind, and now I see. And the Pharisees kick him out get rid of him jesus lays his hand on the blind man and he's healed the pharisees lay the hand on the blind man to kick him out and the fundamental question under chapter nine is one is who is christ and where does his authority derive from and jesus in chapter 10 is answering the question where does my authority come from so let's take a look at what we might be saying in john 10. we've seen at several occasions but the first couple occasions here verses one through six we see he who enters by the gate, that is the one who enters in the legitimate way, who calls the sheep by name and they recognize the voice. That is the person who has legitimate authority, the one who enters in the right way. Just to be frank, you see somebody trying to sneak into the back door of a house at night with a crowbar, you're assuming they don't have authority to be in that house, right? Right? That's what Jesus is saying. You see a guy climbing over the pin of a, a sheep pen over the side of it, he's probably not the one that needs to be there because he would have went through the gate if he was supposed to be there. In other words, the issue is legitimate authority. It is in the context of legitimate authority that Jesus brings up the abundant life. So what does the abundant life have to do with authority? I think that's a good question. So let's talk about it. The word authority, uh, exousia in Greek, simply means um, out of the, it's weird, out of the nature of a thing. In other words, something uh, there's authority because it's coming out of what is true. It's, it has authority uh, not just because of some position people have given it, but because it's connected to the nature of the thing. It's literally what the word exousia means. It, it's coming out of the nature of the thing. Right? So you take that as authority, then you take what is life. That's a complicated question, isn't it? What, what is life? Um, I'm not going to bore you, but I'll get, well, I am going to bore you probably philosophically for a moment. But life is, uh, life is the power to relate and to assimilate. Anything that's alive can relate to things around it, pull things in from outside of it, and assimilate it into itself. A plant reaches and relates to the soil, it reaches for the sun, it draws in water and assimilates it so that it grows as a whole. Does that make sense? And then you add to that, there's some self-initiating, self-determining power or energy there when things are alive. Listen, I, I don't mean to be complicated, but, but look, this is really important that we understand it. We, we kind of know this in, intuitively, but we don't really talk about it. You take a plant, it's reaching in, you know, it's got roots, and it's alive and it's growing. It has these, these parts. These parts are integrated. They reach, they relate to the world around it, draw things in they need, and it grows. So does a tree. It just does it on a much larger scale, right? Reaches into the ground and it grows. But then you take something that has a will, that can move, add another level of life to it, a a level of mobility, say an animal or a dog or a horse who has greater degrees of complexity, who still has to relate to the world around it and pull things in, but it's integrated as a whole. Because the the level is higher and because the integration is more deeper and complex, it's a different kind of life than the life of a tree. That's why it's not a moral issue to cut the limb off a tree, but a guy's going around cutting a limb off a horse for no reason, He's psychotic. Do you hear what I'm saying? We have to think about this. What does it mean to have a different kind of life? It means there's a different depth of integration. It means that things are becoming more intertwined, not less intertwined. In fact, death is separation. When something dies, it decays, it disintegrates. Life integrates. It brings things together. Well, that was fun. I don't even know why I said that, but there you go. That's like, no, I didn't know why I said it. It's going to help later. All right. So this is a difference, though. There's a difference between, as we think about life, there's a difference between when the Bible uses the word eternal life and when the Bible talks about abundant life, right? Actually, this is the only real place the Bible talks about abundant life, so it needs to be, I think, clarified. When the Bible tends to talk about eternal life, it's talking about a life, uh, more quantity of life, a life that never ends. Now, we are living in eternity now, right? And then we will continue in Christ to live in eternity after death. That's what we're talking about when we talk about eternal life, the, the longevity of it, the, the quantity of it, the, the, uh, the, the never-endingness of it. When we talk about abundant life, which literally means to be full or to fill to the brim, to overflowing, it's not talking about how, how much life we have or how long our life is. It's talking about the character of our life, the, the quality of our life, a life that is full, a life that is rich, a life that is full and lived at every level a human being is meant to be full and rich. So a cabbage is alive. But it's dead to the realm of play. If you give it a ball of yarn, it's not going to play with it like a cat. Now, a cat is a little bit more alive because it's alive to another realm, and it can play. It's alive to the realm of play, so it plays with the the yarn. But that cat can't ever read poetry or literature. That cat's not quoting Shakespeare. It's dead to the realm of literature. So you see what I'm saying? There's different realms in which we can be alive to. And we're going to find out next week that one of the fundamental things Jesus did is made us alive to this realm called spirit. This spiritual realm in which we were dead and and separated from and have to learn to live in again. And we're going to be as clumsy as a cat trying to learn Shakespeare as we're trying to learn how to live in this realm called spirit but we're alive in a different realm, a fullness of realm. We'll we'll walk. That's next week. There you go. So the point is, though, we all have to choose. In fact, we're free to choose, but worse than that, we are forced to choose. That is, we have to opt for a direction of our lives that we will enact without much thought with small little decisions every day. And what we should be in the quest for is we should be, have a quest for some sort of solid basis of knowledge of what is true that can be trusted to build our lives upon. Now, knowledge of what is true, I'm not talking about academic knowledge, I'm just talking about experiential, knowing something, comes in many different forms. But one way that knowledge tends to come is by authority. In fact, we rely on authority for the better part of most of our lives. You rely on the authority of the doctor to talk to you about your health. You rely upon the authority of a mechanic or a lawyer. You rely on the authority of people you've never met when you look at Amazon reviews. <laughs> you see? We have an experience, but we want to know someone else's experience. We want to know is there some truth to it. We live, In fact, knowledge, appropriate knowledge of what is the case is at, constitutes the basis for authority not some hierarchy of institutional position. Does this make sense? So when we know things, we we know them as they are, there's an authority that comes with it. So why does Jesus bring up uh, the abundant life in the context of authority? Because Jesus is teaching us that he has the proper authority to teach and to give abundant life. If you're looking for knowledge of reality that you can build your life on, Jesus is saying, I'm here. You can build your life upon me and my teaching, and you will have abundant life. And all the voices, Jesus is saying, here. Now, he gives evidence. He gives three things in this passage, in just John 10 alone. The three things he says is evidence on why you can trust him. One, he does the works of God. A blind man likes seas and all. You might want to pay attention to that, right? He resurrects the dead. He heals the sick. Another evidence that he gives is that his sheep hear his voice and respond that deep within the heart of humanity is a uh, it resonates with them that they're hearing the word of god and they respond to him and the third evidence he gives just in this little passage is that he will lay down his life and take it up again his death and resurrection will be evidence that he has the authority to tell us about life how's that for an amazon review So the truth is, we live most of our lives by trusting authority. Not all authority can be trusted. That's an issue. And we have to weed through that. But can Jesus be trusted? So let's look at what he tells us about the abundant life. Everybody good so far? All right. Hope this is helpful. If not, I'm getting a whole lot of things off my chest. All right. Look, I I don't, let me just be clear. We do, we rely on authority, especially when we're trying to make big decisions. You're going to go buy a house, you're going to actually have to pay for somebody who has authority and knowledge to come decide how much your house is worth that's an appraiser so you're going to have people in the bank going to tell you about what interest rates are going and what the cost is going to be insurance we, we have to rely on a bunch of other people who have a knowledge in those areas just to buy a house to, to buy a car just to do simple things it's the small personal preferential decisions that are really trivial we actually do personally what kind of ice cream do you want You see, when we try to think our life can be about our preferences, I would just challenge you that you rarely make big decisions in the rest of your life based on your preference. You tend to make it based on authority. So now we have to decide what Jesus teaches us here. So let's look at it. The nature of the abundant life that Jesus points out especially here in verses 1 through 6 Jesus tells us a couple things about the abundant life. One is he tells us the abundant life will be relational. That is Jesus speaks to us. Jesus calls his sheep. He invites us, me and you to follow him. Not this universal us but each one individually to follow him. There's not some formula that you can find in order that if you get all the formula right you'll get abundant life. There's not some list of do's and don'ts. That's totally exhaustive. Covers every situation. If you'll just do all the right ones, you'll have abundant life. This is not determined by how much you, uh, how many possessions you own or the background in which you come. That if you want abundant life, it is deeply and personally connected to the person Jesus Christ. Abundant life stems from the relationship with God. He, there is a person that must lead us if we're going to find abundant life. The second thing, not only is it relational or intimate, it's also personal. He knows your name. You're not a number. He knows you. He knows the the pain of your childhood. He knows the difficulty of your adolescence. He knows the anxieties and brokenness of your adulthood. He knows you. And he loves you. And he invites you to follow him. This is, Paul, we tend to talk about the Apostle Paul like he's some, you know, aloof theologian who just talks in puzzles, right? But, Paul in Galatians actually says, "For he loved me, and gave himself for me." Paul saying, "I have a personal experience with this. He knows our name. We know and recognize his voice. If you're saved, then you've heard the call of God. You've heard the voice of Jesus. If you're not saved, listen, because he's calling. He's calling." So, God knows each of us and it's personal. So, the abundant life is not only relational in that it's connected to the person Jesus, it's also personal. I can't, if I just want a little abundant life and not have to mess with people, well, good luck. <laughs> right? Three. The abundant life, though Jesus tells us it's connected to him and his leadership, it's also purposeful. He leads us, it says. We are dependent upon him as a sheep is on a shepherd. Jesus tells us that the good shepherd will lead us in and out to find pasture. This is very important. The the sheep go into the cave or to the pen in order to be protected from the, the predators and the thieves. But he needs to lead them out because there's no food or resource there. So he leads them to the pasture where they can find food and water. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, not only do I know you uh, intimately, not only do I am I calling you to know me and follow me, but I, he's trying to give you, here's my good purpose to you. I will lead you and I will provide and protect you through this life. Follow me. Follow me. We must learn to stay With the shepherd, what we'll really see next week is that the flourishing life, um, really for human beings and for all creation, is centered around learning how to be um, a home for God, the dwelling place of God, where God dwells with us, and that's filled the New Testament from language like kingdom of God to being filled with His fullness to abiding in His presence. But but that's kind of the crux of what Jesus is teaching. Then Jesus does something odd in the middle of telling a story. He changes the perspective within the analogy. He was the shepherd, and then all of a sudden in verses 7-10, through 10, he changes as says, I'm the door. Right? That's a bit odd, isn't it? You're the shepherd, you're the shepherd. Oh, no, I'm the door now. You're the door now. What we may not understand in, in our civilization is there were plenty of times when a shepherd would have to, imagine being a shepherd with sheep out in the middle of a valley in, in Israel. There's, there's these little caves all tucked in, and you go to put them up for the night, you push them all in the cave, A shepherd would actually lay down at the mouth of a cave to make sure sheep didn't leave and become vulnerable to make sure predators and thieves didn't come in. So when Jesus is saying, I am the door, he's saying, not only am I a good shepherd, I am the only way you're going to stay safe from the enemy. And I'm the only way you're going to find life and life abundantly. It is a appeal to exclusivity. The abundant life, as Jesus teaches us, then is not about the preferences of the sheep, but rather based in the goodness of the shepherd. But what Jesus tells us and we should be warned about is he says, there is an enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But what we see throughout every example Jesus gives in John 10, the only way the enemy can really get to the sheep is to deceive the sheep. To speak to them as if he's their shepherd. To try to draw them out. So what I'd like to do, (laughs) just to have some more fun with you, is I'd like to give you some common deceptions of our culture on how, and how we might, or pathways to the abundant life, all right? So everybody just be nice and relaxed. I'm sure this has nothing to do with you, just all those people looking online. Just joking. Here are some common deceptions of our culture. Now listen, let me just say this. I believe personally it is a responsibility of the church to whatever age and whatever place she's in, whatever period of time she's in, and wherever she's located to be able to articulate what the cult, their culture is saying, and then to challenge it with the truth. So I'm not saying these were the same things that Jesus faced. I'm saying these are ones we face, and we got to have a way to deal with them. All right. Number one, common deception, common deception on how to find the abundant life. The first one: find your authentic self. Oh, it got quiet. <laughs> Which really, authenticity has come more to be unique. What if your authentic self is like, authentically like a bunch of other people? Are you okay with that? Right? We get now more to uniqueness than we do authenticity. But we are bombarded with this message. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. And if you just find yourself and say true to yourself, that's the way to the flourishing life. We have marketing campaigns that appeal to this. Buy this cologne and you will be uniquely authentic just like the other 1.5 million people that bought this cologne. We're constantly bombarded with the message of authenticity. Now, look, I want to be clear the abundant life is not built on being unauthentic, right? But what does one do when the self we discover is selfish, sinful, and broken? What if the authentic you is just messed up? You see, we assume the authentic self will be good. That's an assumption. It goes way back, you can trace it philosophically to certain people. And that's not exactly what the Bible says. What do we do when our authentic self turns out to be broken, sinful, selfish? In other words, Jesus would teach us that there is a part of ourself we must learn to deny if we want to find life. Now, again, self-denial is not the same thing as self-rejection, but there is a sense in which we have to deny parts of ourselves. So this kind of undermines the idea of find your authentic self. Number two, another common assumption or deception we see in our day. Follow your dreams. (laughs) How does one know their dream's worth following? What a shock it would be to give 30 years to your dream and find it and go, oh, that's it. What do you do with the overwhelming evidence of people who have accomplished their dream and tell us it does not satisfy? I mean, even further, this basically is saying what, it, what this idea follow your dream and that's how you get to abundant life is basically saying I'm the only true expert on how my talents and my skills and personality kind of give birth to this thing I ought to be doing. I'm the only expert on that, really. Like, we all know that there's like, what, 30-something percent of ourselves we don't even realize. Like there's parts of us we can't even see and we're going to be the expert on us. Now, we might be the only one we trust compared to everybody else, but that's not the same thing as being an expert. But that's what we're kind of saying, right? I, I, only I know my skills and only I know my talents I give birth to my dream, which legitimizes all my striving because it's mine. Right? Not only do we not consider if our dream is worth striving for, but we also rarely consider who or what has really informed our dreams. I know people who have dreams just because they're trying to get the approval of their mama. I know people have dreams just because they think that it will get them a, a certain kind of lifestyle. That what's actually motivating and informing the dreams we're choosing, we rarely think about. Number three, another common deception is just be independent. Right? Just get, be independent. And this idea states that what makes life flourish or what makes life abundant is freedom to do what we want. But look, being free and independent is not necessarily a virtue. The real question is, what are you going to do with the freedom you have? And what about the fact we rarely know what to do with the amount of freedom we have now? Sorry. Really, in our day, when people talk about being independent, really what they mean is to be financially independent. The fourth thing, I'm just going to hurry through this because I can tell this is fun for you, is... Um, Uh, a hedonistic approach, that is that pleasure becomes ultimate. So, number one, under this, hedonism would be pleasure. Pursue milking this life as as much pleasure as possible, and seek to avoid as much pain as possible. Now, with this view, you have some serious, uh, immoral and unjust implications. I'm to pursue pleasure at all cost. What if that means I want a sex slave? You see? When do I limit... The amount of pleasure I put on myself to be good. We don't have any way of knowing that. We don't have any agreed upon way of understanding that. Just to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain at all cost creates all kinds of immoral and unjust situations around us which cannot be then a good life. But then, and even with all that in mind we have another fundamental question that we all know by experience but we rarely think about and that is what about the fact? That the more you satisfy pleasure, the more pleasure wants. People talk about what the problem with pain, if there's a good God, why am I in pain? My question would be, why is, what's about the problem with pleasure? What about the fact that we have this deep longing to be satisfied, but nothing satisfies? I know a lot of people seeking to satisfy themselves. I just don't meet a lot of satisfied selves. So what if pleasure is a lie? I'm not saying that God, the abundant life is filled with a bunch of things that are unpleasurable. I'm just saying making pleasure an end in itself does not work. At the end of the day, we really don't satisfy pleasure, we just postpone it. All right, the last thing I just want to point out is um, under the hedonism that our culture has to deal with is sexuality or some form of romance. We live in a world where sexuality is no longer just one part of our identity but now it's become one of the most defining parts of our identity. But a good question to consider is this. Can someone live a flourishing life without satisfying their sexuality or without falling in love? Do we really think that Jesus could have lived a more fulfilled life if he had just found a young lady, settled down, had children? Right? This is the, the rom-com philosophy making everybody nervous right now isn't it do we really would do we really think hey mother Teresa, you did a great job but if you would have just at one point been down at the market and found a guy you you run into awkwardly and clumsily and he flirts with you a little bit and then you think about him on the way home but you're not sure and somehow he finds out where you live and pursues you and goes to great lengths to get you and you find him and fall in love and have children you could have lived a more fulfilled life mother Teresa, if you'd just fallen in love got married had sex had children We really believe that. You see, we don't... uh, I can feel the awkwardness in the room. I'm trying to challenge our assumptions. I'm not saying sexuality or pleasure is bad. I'm saying they are not ends in themselves that can hold the aim or the goal of our entire lives to be abundant. It is possible to have abundant life without fulfilling your sexuality, without being married, without having children. There's a lot of people... That being married, having sex, having children is a part of why their life is abundant. And that's okay. It just can't be the end goal of why life's abundant. Well, now that we awkwardly got that out of the way, here's the deal. In all of these views, what ends up practically happening is that we focus... uh, on gathering the resources we need to try to live out our authentic self or live out our dream or fulfill our pleasures. So in the end, all of these quote unquote dreams or ways to abundant life just dilute unintentionally into materialistic pursuits. And these are some of the common thieves and robbers we find today that if we're not careful, we'll kill, steal, and destroy. It's interesting, when we think about deception, we always think about someone else, not ourselves. Huh. But look, at the end of the day, it's not that we don't know how to live meaningful lives. It's that we rarely slow down enough to consider the question, to think about it. And if we do reflect, we are confronted with our lack of uh, ability to articulate or even the skills, if you would, to actually achieve or even know what this vision of a good life might be. And so we often resort to the same kind of habits we find in, in, in our consumer uh, lives so what we do is we really treat um, we really treat the vision of the good life kind of like we do as we shop on Amazon We're going to go out and find the things we like and put in the basket and then we're going to go and read if we're really cautious some of the some of the customer reviews to decide out what it is we, we should buy That's the way we often treat uh, the vision of our life We either go by gut feeling or we go by some customer review here are the things I do like let's just see what everybody said about those here are a bunch of things I don't like We don't ever ask are they true? Can it be counted on? Will it actually satisfy? And what ends up happening is we end up. Well, I should pause. Our only master then seems to become our own taste. Supposedly authentically ours, yet it consistently mirrors the world around us. So the good life becomes privatized. And then we think our choice is worthy of respect just because it's ours. And it resonates with who we perceive to be. But there's a great cost to that. There's a great cost. The cost is we begin to relativize those who actually might know something about the abundant life. We begin to treat religious teachers like Jesus. We begin to teach them like waiters at a restaurant. I just need you to describe each dish. But don't you dare tell me what I should order. So Jesus come and describe... A handful of things that may make a good life, and I'll decide what it is I really want to eat. And the only thing that matters in the end is whether or not I enjoyed the dish. You see, we become even incapable of hearing the ancient voices that tell us what flourishing life might be. That's one cost. Another cost is that it renders our choices meaningless. Right, if I give no other reason than my choice and direction for my life because other than it's my preference alone, right, but that choosing something just because we want to empties our choices of any significance. Any meaning I could apply to my choice can now just as easily be taken away from my choice. So any choice is as good as another. So, our choices then, this is a cost for making taste the, or preference the real mode due to the abundant life. What ends up happening is I, my choices in my life slowly become arbitrary. And underneath it, I have the sneaky suspicion of the meaninglessness of my life. But I can't quite put my finger on it. It's just really the fear of the real possibility. Of living a meaningless life is one of the reasons people still might search for the truth and what I'm trying to say is not only do we need to challenge ourselves to think about it the way Jesus does but we're living in a time where the world's becoming increasingly more aware of their fear that the fear is very real it's a very real possibility they will live a meaningless life and now they're asking questions When you say just choose what you want is really equivalent to just saying I don't care what you choose. Which is another way of saying your choice doesn't really matter. So with taste in charge of the direction of our lives we become vulnerable to the sneaky suspicion that our lives are arbitrary or meaninglessness. And that's a cost for making taste or preference the way to the abundant life. And what I want to say is another one of these costs is not that we're just committed to some convictions that lead to meaninglessness. What I'm trying to say is we don't even have an overarching vision of what the flourishing life is that will help us discern and grab a hold of the meaningful things that are already in our lives. Hear me. It is not simply that we're committed to some convictions that lead to meaninglessness. It's that we don't even have the tools by not having an overarching vision of what the flourishing life really is. it doesn't. We don't have any tools at our disposal to really discern the meaningful stuff that's already happening in our own lives. We can't even see it. Then there's a public cost. I, I, let me just stop. I remember... I, must, I don't really have a lot of time, but I remember a business owner one time. Uh, I was coaching him, and he, you know, great company, hundred and some odd employees, doing great. He got really touched by God, and, and it was an amazing thing. And he said, I think I'm going to just sell my whole company and everything, and I'm going to give my life to helping others. And I was like, what do you mean by that? I want to help others, do so, you know, those in poverty. We kind of went through whether it's Wales and Africa, all this other stuff. Finally, I said, can we just pause for a minute? How many employees do you have? And he's like, oh, whatever, 125. And I said, how many families... Do you, how many people do you think that represents of you to add their families? Let's just say three, fifty, four hundred. 400. I said, by owning this business and stewarding it well, you provide a living for 400 people. And you're gonna sell all that to go help people. He didn't have a vision that allowed him to see the meaningful things he was already doing in his life. And much of us suffer from this... ADD of trying to find the next thing that's going to satisfy, not realizing it's not the next thing. It's that we don't even have the right lenses that helps us see what's truly meaningful in front of us. And Jesus has something to say about it. There's also not only that's a private or personal cost, there's a public cost and the public cost really is that there's a loss of dialogue about what really matters to the human life in the public sphere. And any conversation we have turns out to be nothing more than shouting matches it feels like, right? but unable to reason with one another about the most important aspects of our lives, what we do is we just then kind of um, default to some disengaged individualism. I'm just gonna worry about my own canoe and not worry about the rest of the world instead of choosing to deeply invest in discovering the truth of our common humanity and what might make all human beings live a satisfying and fulfilled life. We just kind of retreat to some individualism. We turn on Netflix a little longer We numb ourselves from the pain. Well, as I begin to... Well, I'm not going to promise landing the plane just yet. Hang on. Just some simple overviews as as I begin. There are thieves and robbers. There are thieves and there's predators that are out to steal the abundant life from us. But the only way the enemy can get us is by deceiving us. Therefore, I encourage you, we must all take time to reflect on the voices that we're really listening to. Because look an unexamined and unreflective life will always favor the enemy. An unexamined and unreflective life will always favor the enemy. Second thing is we sum this up, we see Christ as the good shepherd and the source of abundant life. We must learn how to trust Jesus' ability to lead us more than we trust the enemy's ability to deceive us. That, yes, there is an enemy, but I don't need to outwit the enemy, I just need to stay close to Jesus. He's the one that outwits the enemy. At no point does one look at a sheep and go, well, you should have protected yourself. Right. They look for the shepherd. Stay close to the shepherd. Our fears become less and less in view of God's good care of us. It's the shepherd's responsibility to keep the thieves and predators away. It's our job to stay close to the shepherd. And the third thing is this. We all have to act. Like you might be here and be going, this is kind of you know, unnerving and I'm not feeling real great. But the point is, it doesn't matter. You still have to choose. (laughs) Nobody gets to opt out of this. We all must act. So the question really is, who are you trusting with your life? In a sense, as one philosopher said, we are condemned to act. We have to, even if we don't want to. To choose a direction of our lives, and it's most desirable that we would act on the basis of knowledge of what is real that we can trust And what Christ is trying to teach us in this passage is he's the one who has legitimate authority that you can trust what he has to say about abundant life. So we must take time then to examine what it is that informs our ideas of the abundant life. Next week we're gonna look at the form and maybe the content of this abundant life. We're gonna give some three things that will help us discern and recognize and engage with an abundant life This side of heaven, knowing that it will not be complete till the other side, but we're going to examine some of those. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I, I just want to maybe ask you a couple questions. Have you ever wondered why you or maybe people you know, let's just say people, why people? You can decide whether or not this is you. Have you ever wondered why people are always looking for a different job or to make more money versus spending their time learning to enjoy the good things they already have? It's because of the vision that they have of the good life. Have you ever wondered why we buy things we can't afford and usually don't need to impress people who don't really care? It's because we have a vision of a certain kind of life. Have you ever wondered why we tend to just play along with the cycle of the living dead, where we go to work in order to get money, in order to buy things, and so that we can go back to work to make more money, to keep the things, and then we work longer and harder hours to get more money so that we can buy more things, and on and on the cycle goes. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're like, I just wanna get off of this? That's what fuels that is a particular vision of the good life. Have you ever wondered why we might find it hard to name five to ten meaningful things that we're doing with our lives right now? If I was to ask you give me five to ten meaningful things you're doing with your life, could you name them? I'm not saying they're not there, I'm saying we can't see them. Have you ever wondered why although we live better than any other society in history, we have a culture that's still filled with worry, anxiety, depression and who numbs themselves on entertainment you know we don't think about words much anymore but amusement amusement right the word muse means to think upon like the musing of the mind it's to constantly think to reflect to think upon the prefix ah means to negate like an atheist a negates the theist or a negates the moral amusement to negate thinking Amusement is a way of turning our brain off. Have you ever wondered why we're always in a hurry but we don't exactly know where we're going? You see, at the end of the day, these all have to do with the fact that we have a particular vision of what the flourishing life and the abundant life looks like. We just don't quite know where it came from or who articulated it to us or even how to articulate it. And what I'm trying to say today is that the real tragedy It's not that we yearn or desire or that we're even discontent. What I'm saying is the real tragedy is we can't even hunger for what really matters. We don't even know what to hunger for. We just know we hunger. Jesus would stand up in John 7 and say at the last day of the great feast, if any man's thirsty, let him come. Let him come and drink because he sees all the things that won't satisfy says, come. So your GP2RL for today, for this week, to practice, is this. Would you take time to reflect on what you think you need to obtain the abundant life? It's a great question. What is it you think you don't have that you need to get? And if you just got it, your life would be more abundant. What is it? Because that says something about the vision you have about the good life. And then the next question would be, does that align with what Jesus teaches us? That's a hard one. Would you stand with me? We're going to take about two minutes to just pause, and we're going to let the Lord just kind of have his way. He can convict us, move with us. I'm going to ask the uh, prayer team, would you go to the back? You know, I, I'm not going to. We're going to just go do this, and then we're going to go. I feel like there's people here, if you just listen to me, you've been, you, you recognize they're striving. Uh, hang on. Jesus, I don't understand. There's this, um, you, you recognize, when, I, when I'm talking about the striving and the yearning, you, you recognize those moments in your life, and you're realizing in this moment, you, you've never heard Jesus call your voice, your name. You've never heard his voice call your name, and you've never said yes to him. But in a sense, that right now, God would be calling you. He's drawing you. He's calling your name, and he's saying, come. If that's you, then as we worship, there's a prayer team in the back. They would love to talk and help you work through that and pray for you on how to do that. Maybe there's people here who you've realized as we've just been talking that there's things amiss and you're asking Jesus to come. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and understanding. And as we worship, we, we're going to worship together. You can, there's giving stations uh, to give. There's communion in the back. We're going to take about four or five minutes and we're just going to worship the Lord and let him do what he wants to do in response. Amen? Father, would you come? Um, All the teaching in the world can't change people's hearts. So, Spirit, I pray you would breathe upon the words that are from you, and may they have a lasting impact. May any words that were not of you fall to the ground. Unless you build a house, we labor in vain. So come, Holy Spirit, and do what you do as we worship you. Amen.